and turn to that passage in 1 John. If you need a Bible, there are Bibles on the round tables there for you. You can get up and grab one. If you don't know where 1 John is, that's all right. We all start somewhere, and 1 John's not necessarily one of the easier books to find. And so there is a, uh, a table of contents in the front of the Bible, but if you have one of those round table Bibles, then the page numbers are there for you in the bulletin. Let me pray for us. God, would you be our joy? Would you send out your word to bring joy? As I preach your word, may I preach it joyfully because it is true and also because it is good and loving. And may your love envelop us cast out all fear, and transform us into your likeness and image. To do that, we need your Spirit to come and inhabit these words and to present to us the very presence of Christ, that we might be transformed from one degree of glory to the next. And so we ask that you would do just that, in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, if you're just joining us, we have been in a series on the book of 1 John. And if you're wondering why John is writing, he says so why he is writing at the very beginning. He says in chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, that he is writing that we might know the joy of knowing God. That we might know the joy of knowing God. See, the audacious claim of Christianity is that you can have an intimate relationship with the infinite God. An intimate relationship with the infinite God. And the audacious claim of Christianity is that having an intimate relationship with the infinite God only comes through Jesus Christ. So John will write that Jesus is the true, the full, the final revelation of God. The authentic revelation of God. And John will write that Jesus is the one who is the reconciling sacrifice which takes away the sin of the world. And so it's because of Jesus that we can have an intimate relationship with the infinite God. So here's the question. Do you know God? Do you have an intimate relationship with the infinite God? And how would you even know if you did? How could you tell? Well, in the section that we are in, in 1 John, John is answering that very question. If you look back up a few verses from the verses that was read, in chapter 2, verse 3, he says, By this we have come to know him. By this we know that we have come to know him, rather. By this we know that we have come to know him. How do you know that you know God? John's about to tell us. He's about to give us ways because he says that when you know God, certain things actually are manifest in your life because God's love, his unconditioned love, it takes root in your life and it comes to perfection. It's telos. 
in keeping the commands. It comes to its tell us when we actually look like Jesus. Look in chapter 2, verses 5 and 6. Whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected or completed or reaches its goal. See, God's love has a goal. And that goal is to transform you. So by this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he, that is Jesus, walked. You see, what does it look like to have an intimate relationship with the infinite God? Well, it looks like Jesus. Jesus, who kept all the commands of God. Not as a legalistic box checking, but in intimate communion with God. Jesus, who viewed all the commands in love. Jesus, who is love. And that's what we will look at today. Love. Pam and I have been watching this series called The Crown. It's about the reign of Queen Elizabeth II. Uh, We're Anglophiles, and so, hence, we watch The Crown. Uh, And the interesting thing about the beginning of Queen Elizabeth's life is that a lot of it revolves around um, the drama over her uncle, Edward VIII. Some of you know the story. It's actually a very fascinating, crazy story. But he came to the throne and then abdicated his position on the throne, and, uh, and it's showing the internal dynamics of the family in light of his abdication and the fallout and how he was ostracized, how they saw him as actually uh, putting the burden that was rightfully placed on him by God and in God's providence on someone else and abdicating his responsibilities. Um, But there's this interesting scene in which Edward VIII is talking to Winston Churchill and he says, but Winston, I did it for love. And there's no greater thing than love. You know, the primacy of love is both ancient and common. Jesus, when he summarized the commandments, he said, uh, what is the greatest commandment? It's to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength, and the second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. See, when Jesus looked at all the commandments, he saw them through a, a, a lens, a hermeneutic of love. Uh, Jesus being the most important figure in the origin of Christianity, the second most important or influential figure is probably the Apostle Paul. When Paul writes to the Romans, he says that the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. In other words, Jesus and Paul are both saying that, that, that love is primary. And so, uh, before the Beatles saying all you need is love, there was Paul, and before Paul there was Jesus, and before Jesus there was Leviticus. See, it goes all the way back to the beginning. That's actually what John reminds us of in verses 7 and 8, that he is giving no new command, but one that goes right back to the beginning, that we were made to love God and to love others. 
And John, he will go so far as to say that if you, if you don't love others, if love is absent from your life, then you don't know God. Look in verse 10. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light. Now that idea of abiding in the light for John, that, that is his way of describing having an intimate relationship with the infinite God. You see, to abide in the light is to live in the light of God's love, is to receive God's love and live in communion with him. And he says, whoever loves his brother abides in the light. That, that God's love, God's unconditioned love, it will, it will reflect and refract off of the soul that receives it. That his love will be perfected in them, be completed in them, will reach its goal by pouring out in love for others. Conversely, though, verse 9, whoever says that he is in the light and hates his brother is still in the darkness. And there's a lot of darkness all around. See, if love is all we need, love seems to be in short supply these days. I don't know about you, but this was a really difficult week for me. Uh, and it was uh, a difficult week um, for a number of reasons, but uh, it was a difficult week because of the selection. Uh, not so much because of the results of the election as much as the responses that I've seen, the reaction to the election. And as I looked on news feeds and Facebook accounts and Twitter accounts and saw the back and forth and the rancor, the absolute rancor and despising and abhorring the fear and the blame and the absolute disdain of other people, it was just, it was hard to stomach. It was really hard for me to stomach. And it was hard to stomach because because as I started to drive into work that day, I felt something rising up in me, and something was revealed in me. And that's that not only is there disdain and fear and blame and a divide, division out there, I found it in here that I had disdain, that I was afraid, that I wanted to blame, that I was upset. With people on both sides that I was seeing and how they were responding, and I started to, to realize that this is difficult to stomach, not just because it revealed something about our country, but because it revealed something which I already pretty much knew, but because it revealed something about my heart which I didn't really know, at least not experientially it that way. And then comes verse 9. Whoever says he's in the light and hates his brother is still in the darkness. And then I get to my office, and then I open up God's Word, and then I have to write a sermon, and then comes verse 9. John says that... that you cannot hate someone else and claim to be in a living relationship 
with the God who loves. Because God is love. Now that's a challenging word. It's a challenging word to any who believes that they have hate in their heart. But it's probably not a challenging word to most of us here. Because most of us, if I'm honest, I don't really think that I have hate in my heart. I don't think about uh, hating others. I mean, I'm not out to to get other people. I'm not uh, actively pursuing their demise. And so uh, I think, well, this is a challenging word, but it's a challenging word for someone else, not for me, because I, I don't hate. But what does it mean to hate? I was in a, um, I did a wedding, officiated wedding last week, and in the midst of that wedding, you know, I pulled out some of my favorite quotes, and uh, the most uh, influential theologians on my life throughout time, and uh, so I, naturally, I quoted Joni Mitchell from that wonderful album, Blue, you know, Joni Mitchell and her album, Blue, she says, uh, I hate you some, I hate you some, you know, I love you some, I said I love you when I forget about me. And when I said that, I hate you some, I hate you some, you know, I love you some. I said, I love you when I forget about me. And I was, I was exhorting this, uh, this young couple that was getting married, uh, that love is actually forgetting yourself and moving out into the other. But when I said that, it was so interesting because you heard this kind of confusion and gasp. And I, Wait, what are you talking about hate for? And two people that are standing at the altar clearly do not hate each other. They, they might be frustrated with each other at times. They might, be, uh, they might get on each other's nerves, but they don't hate each other. So this is really irrelevant, isn't it? Well, it all depends on what we mean by hate and what hate is. I mean, if hate is the pursuit of someone else's demise, then sure, I don't hate. At least I don't actively pursue that. I mean, as most as it gets is in my head, you know, you wish bad upon someone, but you would never say that, all right? I didn't just say that to you take that off the tape. But, so I don't hate, and you don't hate, but do I love? Do you love? You know, Jesus, he says something interesting uh, in Luke 6, 22. He says, blessed are you when people hate you, and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Blessed are you when people hate you. And then Jesus goes on to define what hate is. What does Jesus think that hate is? How does Jesus define hate? It is to exclude, to revile, to spurn your name on account of something that you believe. See, hate is exclusion. It is insults. It's failing to accord respect to someone else because they disagree with you. So... Well, if that's the definition, then maybe I do hate. Maybe hate is in my heart. Maybe a lot more of us should be challenged by this then. I mean, because, because exclusion, it happens all the time. And, and it can happen passively. If you're not actually actively including, then oftentimes you are excluding. It was that... Uh, our denominational's annual meeting uh, a couple years ago, we were dealing with the issue of racial reconciliation and some of our spotted history. And a pastor from First Presbyterian Church, Jackson, Mississippi, he got up to the mic, and he was the pastor of that church during the civil rights era. And he said, 
And he was one of the founders of, the, of our denomination. He said, when we left the old church and we formed the, P, uh, the PCA, he said, we, we didn't do it because for hatred of, of, of someone else's race. We weren't, we, weren't, um, we weren't active racists. We weren't against another person's race. And uh, we wanted these other things. We wanted uh, pure doctrine. We wanted a church that did evangelism. We wanted these things. He said, but, um, but you, you, know, you know what? During that whole time, as our brothers and sisters languished, you know what I did during that time? You know what I did? He said, I did nothing. And that's the problem. And then he stood up and he asked for forgiveness for his sins. Sins of omission. See, sometimes we, we exclude just because we don't include. And I think that is a form of hate. Insult is a form of hate. Failing to accord someone respect, the respect that they have as an image bearer of God because they disagree with you, that is a form of hate. In fact, in John, hate is simply a failure to love. If you do not love, you hate. And those who hate, those who fail to love, John says, they are in the darkness Look in verse 11. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. To be in the darkness is to be morally disoriented. In other words, one who hates has a filter. Hate is like a filter that clouds your ability to see morally. It affects everything around you. Uh, a couple weeks ago... Pam and I took Neve to Legoland. Wait, let me correct that. Pam and Neve took me to Legoland. And when we went to Legoland, they had all these 3D rides, which were amazing. It's, I haven't done 3D in so long. And they had these glasses that you put on. And we went, there was even one 4D. Okay, 4D means stuff comes out of the ceiling at you, okay? I don't like that. But anyway, the 3D was so, I mean, it's so amazing. It's been a long time since I had these 3D, and these things are jumping off the screen, and they had this Ninja Warrior fighting game where you're, like, shooting uh, discs at people as these guys are jumping at you, uh, and it was very entertaining, but, but, you know, you take your glasses off. It, it, what those glasses do, they distort reality. These things feel like they're right here, right around your head, but they're not, right? Well, hate is like a filter, like 3D glasses, and it it actually disorients you morally. You don't know where you're going. Hate distorts, in other words, your moral compass. Some people don't even have a moral compass. There's no right and wrong. It's just me and mine. But others have a moral compass, but their moral compass is off. You think you're heading north when you're actually heading west. Why? Because hate, it confuses us about our meaning and purpose. Look in verse 11 again. He goes on. Whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going. You to, have, to have morality and moral reality, uh, moral, uh, morals assume a telos, an end. And if you don't know where you're going, then you don't know how to get there. Then you can't say what is right or wrong or up from down. And so here's what this means. If hate, if it distorts our moral compass, then that means that if we have hate in our hearts, then we need to 
second-guess ourselves morally. See, when we hate, we lose sight of the goal, which is to love. God created you to love. Did you know that? Every person in this room is a lover. And God created you to love. He created you to love him with your whole being. And he created you to love others with your whole being, to move out and to pursue the world in love. That's why God created you. That's what you were made for. See, if hate is the problem, then love is the answer. Look in verse 10. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. If hate is the problem, then love is the answer. But what do we mean by love? And people say that, we just need more love. All you need is love. But what is love? Is it a sentimental affection for someone else? Is it an affinity for someone? What does it mean to love? Does it mean that you are agreeable on everything? What does it mean to love? What do people mean when they say that? I'm, I'm serious. I don't know. I don't know what it means when people say that. But I think that when the Bible talks about love, let me give you a definition for love. To love is to desire another's flourishing. That's what love is. Let me say that again. To love someone is to desire their flourishing. To love is to desire another's flourishing. And that's why it's different than like. You know, you can, you like people who you have an affinity to. Uh, and you can like someone and desire their flourishing. But you know, you can't like have an affinity for an enemy. But you can love an enemy. You can desire their flourishing. You can want to see them flourish and be all that God created them to be. You can do that. But John, he's not talking about loving enemies. Look in verse 9. He's speaking of fellow Christians. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother. Verse 10, whoever loves his brother. Verse 11, whoever hates his brother. Now, why does John say that? Does he think that we should only love Christians? You know, some people, some folks have said that. Uh, Jesus, when he is preaching in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, 43, he says, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now, have you ever thought about that for a second? You have heard it said that you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Does, you know what that means? It means that people were saying you should love your neighbor and hate your enemy. That is that there are people who believe that honoring God means that you love your neighbor and you hate your enemy. That honoring God means that you hate those who aren't like you or with you. That, that, that there are people who believe that. And in fact, a lot of people, a lot of Christians think that that's what it means to honor God. And a lot of people think that that's what Christianity teaches who aren't Christians. That you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but not Jesus. You have heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. See, Jesus, he calls us to love our enemies because he loved his enemies. 
For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Jesus loved his enemies, and he is the model of love. Jesus, he, un, he enhances our understanding of love. Notice in verse 6 and 7, that John says that this command to love is paradoxical. It's at one and the same time ancient and novel. It's new and yet true. He says in verse 7, Beloved, I am writing to you no new command. And then he goes on in verse 8, At the same time, it is a new command that I'm writing to you. So which is it, John? Is it no new command or is it a new command? Is it old or is it new? Well, it's both. It's an old command as we have seen in that it goes back to the very beginning. Even in Leviticus, one of the first books of the Bible written, we see the command to love. And yet it comes to a new form of expression in Jesus. When Jesus was at the death, uh, at the, the gravesite of Lazarus and when his friend had died, his detractors, the Jewish leadership, who did not like Jesus and were no fans of him, they said this, see how he loved him. Speaking of Jesus' position, affection towards Lazarus. Jesus loved like nobody has loved before. Jesus loved his friends like Martha and Mary and Lazarus. Jesus loves lost souls like the rich young ruler, even those who reject him. Jesus loves a hostile city, Jerusalem, and he weeps over it. Jesus loves those who conspired and even put him on the cross, his, the soldiers. Father, forgive them. They know that what they do. Jesus loves like no one has ever loved before. And so Jesus, he makes this a new command because he brings it into a new form of expression and he shows us that we are not only to love our friends, not only those who are like us, not only those who are close to us, but we also love our enemies. And Jesus shows us just how far we should go in loving others, just how far we should go in seeking the flourishing of another. For while we were still sinners... Christ died for us. See, Jesus shows us that we are to love others and seek their flourishing, even at great cost and expense and sacrifice to ourselves. Even the greatest cost and expense and sacrifice to ourselves. That's the new commandment. To love as he loved, to walk as he walked, to give everything to seek the flourishing of others. And if hate is the problem, then love is the answer. That kind of love. Even still, why does John focus on the church in verses 9 through 11? Why the focus on loving and hating a brother? Because the church is the school of love. The church is where we learn how to love people who are different from us, people who we don't naturally find affinity towards. Some of you have given up on the church, and you've given up on the church because you're like, those people are hard to love, they're not kind, they're not welcoming, I don't connect with them, I don't get them. 
That's the whole point. You come into the church and you learn to love people who you don't naturally have an affinity with, who you don't naturally connect to, who are very different from you. And it's there that God teaches you what real love is like. It's here where we learn together how to love and how to receive love, how to seek the flourishing of others who are different from you. And it's from that, from that being morally formed here in the church that we go out and we love others. See, that's the whole point of the church. And if you are rejecting the church, I don't need the church. That, that's like saying, that's like a, an Olympian saying, I don't need the gym. It doesn't make any sense. This is where we learn. This is where God trains us to love. And in that, he also shows us how much he loves us. Because when we're like... If I'm having that much trouble, if it's that difficult to love this person in the church, then how much more difficult was it? How much more sacrifice did it take? How much more coming to understanding did it take for God to love me? See, the church is the place where love goes from being this ideal, we should just love, 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 all you need is love, to a messy, embodied, tangible reality. And so, if the message that you're going to tell people is, our country, our world, our society needs more love, don't say that as a pie-in-the-sky ideal, that you aren't willing to actually get into the ring with people and love them in the tangible, messy, dirty, sacrificial realities of life. And that's what the church is for, to train us to love. For whoever loves his brother abides in the light. And in him there is no cause for stumbling. A cause for stumbling is to do something that is detrimental to another person. In the church we learn to look out to the interest of others above ourselves. And we pursue their flourishing. We pursue kingdom progress in their lives. And we don't do anything that might detract from that. Even if it's not otherwise a bad thing. Because we seek to see the kingdom move forward in their lives. So let me ask you, are you committed to the flourishing of others? In what ways is God using the church to teach you to commit to the flourishing of others? What sacrifices are you learning to make for the sake of others, of time, of convenience? Inclusion is never convenient. When you invite people into your group that you, know, you all know really well and you have all the same inside jokes and you have this history, right, and you invite people other into that and you're welcoming, it makes things inconvenient. And there isn't as much, um, you know, flow and gel in the conversation because you're inviting other people in. Yes. It's money sacrifices, it's time sacrifices, it's convenience sacrifices, reputation sacrifices. I identify with these people no matter what other people think. Or I will invite them into my home and let them develop a new understanding of me and my mess. But it's sacrifice and it's love. Are you committed to the flourishing of others? Because you must be. It is a command, a new command. 
Are you committed to the flourishing of others? Because you can be. You can be. Because Jesus, he gives us a new capacity for love. Look in verse 8. He says that this new command is true in Jesus, and because of that, it is also true in you. And then he says, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. John is saying that you have new capacities in Christ to love. Capacities that you would never have had otherwise or before. Why? Because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. John is talking about two kingdoms. A kingdom of light and a kingdom of darkness. Two realms. Right? Uh, the, the old realm was the realm of darkness where hate reigned. But now there's a new realm, the realm of light, brought in by the love of God in Jesus Christ, and there love reigns. Now to speak of a realm or a reign is to, think, is to speak of a controlling influence. I once heard it like this. Think about this. If you are intoxicated, then your intoxication, that is going to influence and control and affect every decision that you make and everything you do, even if it's a small degree. If you're intoxicated, it's going to influence everything. Your motor skills, your speech, uh, your, uh, your energy levels. Everything is going to be affected by that. Now, you are in the realm of intoxication, and intoxication is actually exerting a controlling influence over you. Well, John says that now that Jesus has come, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness will not overcome it. That the light of God's love now exerts a controlling influence in the world, and especially over those Christians who abide in the light. See, love is a sign of belonging to a whole new realm where we are under the influence of love. The love of Christ controls us or compels us, Paul writes in 2 Corinthians. And when that happens, that means that you see everything and everyone and every event in the light of God's love. See, this is a new capacity for love. That it's, it's available for you. How do you do it? Well, I think the answer is in one word there in verse 10, and it's a key word, abide. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light. To abide in the light is, is to constantly receive and live in the light of God's love. And it's not a one-time thing John is talking about. He's not talking about, you know, uh, one day, one time, you, you went on a retreat, you asked Jesus into your heart, or whatever that happens. No, he's talking about a continual, ongoing, constant reception of the love of God in your life. He's talking about being bathed over the reality that the Son of God loves me and gave himself for me. That God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. That in this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his only Son to be an atoning sacrifice for our sin. That is what he is talking about. And sitting there and letting that wash over you, God loves me, God pursues my flourishing my flourishing at great expense to himself, my eternal flourishing. He loves me because he loves me because he loves me. And nothing that I do can undermine that love. It might undermine the, my reception of the love, my experience of the love, but it doesn't undermine his love. That he loves me. 
And when that, when that washes over you, when you abide in God's love on a daily, moment-by-moment basis, what transforms everything, the good things in your life that come, you take them as just that, good things that are at best, at best, a reflection of God's love for you. But they don't make you, and they're not everything. And the bad things that happen in your life, you realize that they cannot undermine or and they cannot shake God's undaunted, committed love for you. Because he who freely gave his own son, how will he not with him freely give you all things? That God's purposes for you in Christ are good. And even the bad things, even the difficult things, even the hard things, God can work out. And they do not undermine his love. Because his love reigns and his love rules. And when Jesus' love reaches into your life and takes hold of you, then you will love others. See, God's unconditioned love, it has a telos, it has a goal. It comes to completion when we love others. And then you will walk as Jesus walked. And as Jesus did, you will receive and live in and know beyond a shadow of a doubt that you are your father's child. You are loved, no matter what happens. God, I do pray that we would live in your love and that your, your love would drive out every last ounce of hate that's in our heart and that we would pursue the flourishing of this world as you have pursued it. And that we would live knowing that we are called to love you, to love others. But to do that, we have to, we have to know, we know that we know that you love us, God. And so continue to convince us of that reality, even as we prepare for you to speak those wonderful words to us through bread and wine at the table. In Jesus' name. Amen.